Welcome to today's episode of the Obsessively Outspoken podcast. My name is Remington Sinclair, and today I have a very special guest, Dr. Chuck Herring. Dr. Herring, how are you? I'm incredible. Sorry about yourself. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, definitely, definitely. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what led you to the path that you're on right now. Hmm. Well, the easy part is where I'm from, you know, born and raised in Pittsburgh, PA, uh, go Steelers. Uh, actually, section of Pittsburgh called Wilkinsburg, um, East End. Uh, spent a lot of time there, a lot of talent there, a lot of love for Wilkinsburg. It's really a, uh, a great space to, uh, to be. You good? I'm good. <laughs> Uh, it was really just a great place to grow up, um, and it was also a, a great uh, place during the time I was there for people. We, we There's something magic about the time I was there. There's so many you know people who were super successful in, in fields that you wouldn't think who uh, come from there. It wasn't the best school district, but one of the things that I think that we had that most school districts didn't have was a lot of black excellence in the building. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the research, but it says that if a black student has a black teacher by the time they're in third or fourth grade, it's like a 30%. And don't quote me on it, but I'm, I'm, I'm just spitballing from memory. Um, 30% higher chance of them graduating from college. And then if uh, they have more than one black teacher in their school career, they have, you know, it like becomes 30% higher than that, which is, you know, ridiculous. Uh, and so um, for us in this school, um, it was a predominantly black school, but we had a lot of black teachers. Like for example, I had black teacher in first grade, black teacher in second, black male teacher in second grade, black teacher in third grade. Uh, didn't have a black teacher in fifth grade, but the other teacher in the fifth grade was a black male teacher. I had a black teacher in sixth grade. I had black teachers throughout um, my middle school experience. I had a black principal in high school. I had a black guidance counselor. And I had black football coach, black basketball coach. Now, to be perfectly honest, not everybody was great, but most were. And... Not that I was even thinking about going into education because I graduated from Wilkinsburg um, with a 2.3 GPA. So um, that was something like, you know, it was one of the lower performing school districts, but my, um, and I was mediocre there, that's hilarious. Um, but one of the things that I, that I, I found is, is that, you know, I learned so much more about being my authentic self. And, and so, that confidence, that 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 uh, you know, that agency, that efficacy, that that people don't don't really ordinarily get, I got because of the people that I was surrounded with, the adults that were in my life that were able to show me and 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 their actions, in their words, and in the ways that they treated and and spoke to me and and dealt with me as a student, as one of their children, I was able to. Um, be able to see myself doing something successful, even though it wasn't necessarily I was thinking about going into uh, education. I, that was that was the furthest thing from what I was going to do. Okay. So when was the moment when you had the epiphany that this is what you wanted to do for the rest of your life? I still don't really know what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, but um, the reason why I got an education, my wife has been in education um, and I would go into her classroom and, and see the things that, that she was doing. And, and, and I noticed that I had a knack for taking the complicated and making things simple. And, and so she would invite me into her classroom and she would have me spend time with the kids reading or just doing something. And, and I was like, man, the kids respond well to me and I enjoy this. So it was something that I really wanted to do. So I, I looked into becoming an educator 
And it's weird, you know, there's a lot of uh, headwinds, there's a lot of barriers that comes to getting into schools of education. And what I mean by that is uh, most people, and particularly most people of color uh, in this country yet and still, which is a sad thing to say, are first generation college. If you know, like when they go to college, they're the first person in their family to go to college, even today. So imagine back in 1986, when I went to college, being the first person to go to college, especially coming from, I was middle of the pack. I was from a lower performing school district. So when I went to college, I was just struggling to keep my head above water. And so those first two, three, four semesters, you know, I was just learning how to be a student. I was learning how to, the game of school, right? And um, so when it was time for me to make a decision or, you know, trying to get into a school of education, I was nowhere near having a 3.0. So you have to have a 3.0 to get into the school of education and they wouldn't let me in. And so at the time, you know, and I'm jumping around, this story is kind of convoluted, but I'm just shortening it, shortening it, shortening it for TV. <laughs> but um, I went and took the national teacher's exam. They don't have that anymore. Each state has their own exam now. But at that time, they had the national teacher's exam. And if you pass the national teacher's exam for, for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you actually passed for all 50 states. And so I went and I took this national teacher's exam and I passed. And so I'm like, so I passed this assessment that people don't do, don't take until they're done taking your courses. I passed it before I took your courses. So therefore, I think you probably need to let me be in this program. Right. So I got into the program provisionally. And so that's how I got into education. But um, as we talked offline, you know, I'm entrepreneurial minded. I've always had businesses. I've always thought about ways to, um, to do well and do good at the same time. So um, I taught, I then um, created this uh, character uh, called Grammar Man and 15 second commercial on grammar man is that grammar man and his sidekicks edit and delete their arch enemy double negative was going around zapping kids with the anti-grammar ray then grammar man would come along and save them through the use of a rap song about nouns verbs adjectives etc wow it really it got me a lot of publicity particularly in the late 90s early 2000s didn't make us a lot of money but what it did do was it got me um I was asked to uh, be the keynote speaker at Princeton University's first ever rap music and education forum. I think that was in 99. And so it's me um, and I'm just some guy from Pittsburgh who loves hip hop. I am hip hop, I, mean, I, I am of the culture of hip hop, but I wasn't a famous rapper or anything like that. But there were, um, I'm the keynote speaker, but on the panel discussion on the dais were Common, Bahamadia, Selwyn Seifu Hines, Crazy Legs from the Rocksteady crew, and all these hip hop icons, right? And I'm like, and me. So, but I don't know, you know, what I said or what I did, but I know that the creator poured something into me to say something must have been pretty amazing because I got a standing ovation. And then people started asking me, well, what else can you do? And that led me to another career as, as a professional speaker. And so I traveled the country as a professional speaker for about, till about 2011, 2012. And my youngest daughter uh, was having a great career, um, athletic career, and she wanted me off the road. She wanted me to come home and be around for all of her activities. And so I was like, okay. So I dusted off my teaching certification and um, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, started teaching there. Uh, and, uh, and about three, three, two, three years later, uh, was told to come out to here to South Fayette. And I came out here 
and liked what I saw. They liked what they saw in me, and I've been here ever since. Wow. Okay. So currently, you are the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. For those who may not know exactly what your core job description entails, can you give us what a day looks like or <laughs> what? <laughs> it, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's different every day. And that's one thing I like because I've never had a job where I've worked more than three years. So I'm here. This is year number seven for me. But I, was, I came to South Fayette for the, as the um, gifted enrichment coordinator, which is hilarious to me because South Fayette is, you know, it was named the district of the decade, um, you know, top performing in the academics, the arts and athletics, you know, so, and me coming from Wilkinsburg with a 2.3 GPA teaching gifted kids, you know what I mean? It's crazy. Right. But what I did was, is um, I came in, I taught, I had a lot of fun. I they told me to create this thing from the ground up. My my gifted enrichment program. I would bring in. I would we would do field trips, but I would bring in field trips. I would have a lot of people. Like I have a good friend of mine who is a black nuclear physicist, and he would come in and he would do a candy reactor with the kids and teach them how nuclear fission works. I have another good friend of mine who is was the one of the youngest VPs at Goldman Sachs. He came in and taught my third graders because I taught K through five. And he taught my third graders all about the stock market. And in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we have this uh, Pennsylvania uh, Council on Financial Literacy. And they have this thing called the stock market game. And it's from third through 12th grade. And the three years that I did that with my third graders, they actually uh, placed in the top 10 based off of the stuff that they learned from my, my good friend who came in and taught them some things about the yeah. stock market. So it's like, you know, I want to make sure that the kids are having real life, real world experiences so they can go out into this world so they can do different things. Um, I, I forged a partnership with uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, their entertainment technology center. And I would take a group of fifth graders every year down there to a master's level program where uh, the people who are in this program are snatched up by uh, Disney and Pixar and uh, Electronic Arts and Blizzard and all these other different uh, film and game making uh, companies, and they're snatched right from this from this program and and put into these um, jobs. And so um, I was like, well, my kids need to do this because my kids make movies. I had, you know, when I was doing that program, we did four camera shoot used Adobe, uh, Adobe Premiere, the whole Adobe suite. And uh, we worked in conjunction with the uh, high school seniors and my fifth graders filmed the movie. I mean, they wrote scripts, they, they pitched it, they came up with budgets, they, um, they did trailers, they did movie posters, they did the whole nine yards and people had different jobs from, from writers, directors, actors, producers, uh, camera people, editors, sound editors, all that stuff. So I did all that. And then at the same time or concurrently, I was, you know, always into uh, DEI work, meaning, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, that just has been my whole life. I've always looked at things um, in terms of win-win situations. Right. And so when I'm looking at these win-win situations, how can I, how can I get, People who have, if, when, I, when I initially meet them or when I'm initially having a conversation with them and we're across the table from each other, how can I get them from folding their arms and, you know, just being all closed off to me to coming around on my side of the table with their arm around me saying, Chuck, where are we going to go from here? So, you know, it's all about, like, like it says in hearing seminars, building equity and inclusion one conversation at a time. And those conversations is basically what I do on a daily basis. I have conversations with the faculty. I have conversations with the staff, meaning so the faculty, the teachers and whatnot, the staff, you know, the custodians, the, the mechanics, maintenance, uh, the um, bus drivers, uh, you know, and just everybody who makes the school run. 
that it's so important that if we're going to have, you know, a world that's culturally responsibly safe and make culturally responsive safe spaces for everyone, then everyone has to be involved in the activities of, of, of making it happen. This isn't a one person lift. I mean, it's too heavy for me by myself. Right. It's too heavy for you by yourself. It's too heavy for two or three people to do it. But if you have, you know, several hundred people lifting just a little bit, then it becomes light. And so that's what I do. So every day I'm, I'm you know, I'm doing trainings. I'm meeting with people. I'm, I'm, I'm recruiting teachers of color because that's one of the big things that's happening here. There's, you know, when I was in school, like I said, I had so many teachers of color. And over the past, you know, 20 years, they said that the research states that there are, in the Commonwealth, there's 6% teachers of color. That's not black teachers, that's just people of color, period. So 94% white, 6% teachers of color. In Allegheny County, there's only 4.5% teachers of color. Right. So that's the greater Pittsburgh area. And I'm like, how is there only 4.5% when the county's about close to 30% people of color? Doesn't make any sense. And so my job is to help, you know, bridge that gap that I talked about earlier, where those barriers to entry are there. You know, it's like most of us are, are, are first generation college. Most of us are coming from lower performing schools. Most of us are trying to figure out how to do college on the fly. But once we get it, we get it and we graduate in large numbers and we get, uh, you know, postgraduate degrees in large numbers because, you know, we you figure things out. And once you figure it out, you get the, the combination. You can always open that lock. And that's right. one thing, you know, when people people don't understand that uh, that when you when somebody has to struggle for something and then they get it, it becomes theirs forever. But if you just get something, and you, you know, and somebody just gives it to you, it's not really of that much value to. So you might you might be a little cavalier or careless with it. Sure. And so that's where I think that there's there's a a disconnect in these rules that people, you know, they, these arbitrary rules, because it doesn't mean just because you have a 4.0 doesn't mean you're a good teacher. That just means that you you did school well. Right. So can you really explain what you need to do, you know, to help people, you know, to, to help the students grow and maximize their potential? So let's talk a little bit more about building equity and inclusion in one conversation at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, hashtag let's talk you know the name of this podcast is obsessively outspoken and i believe sometimes you have to be outspoken about certain things in certain spaces to bring about change mm -hmm. but with that comes discomfort and i'm a true believer is that discomfort is the impetus of change mm -hmm. what is what has your plight been like trying to have these type of conversations throughout your career to bring about progress and change well, one thing you just said about um, the discomfort, you know, it's funny because you can't grow without pains. Hence, they call them growing pains, right? <laughs> so it's like, you know, you're working out. It's like, this is hard. <laughs> but after the fact, you're like, oh, wow, look at me. I look good. I feel good. I'm feeling better. But while you're in the midst of it, you're growing. It's the same thing with school. It's the same thing with, with this uh, DEI stuff. And one of the things that, uh, like in these trainings, I was, we, we showed this, um, there's a video, I can't think of the name of it, I apologize, but there's a video and it shows people on a race and they're, they're, they're on a track and they're running around a track. And, and, and it starts with um, a white man, white woman, a black man, a black woman, but arbitrarily it could have been Asian people or or it could have been indigenous people, but you know, with again, you know, the white person and white man and white female, but it just so happens that they're two black people. And the gun goes off and the runners start running, except that the black people aren't allowed to run, right? And, and when the gun goes off, it starts in 1619. 
And it goes around and around and around and around and around and around and around. And the time is clicking, 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 clicking. And black people aren't allowed to run until 1964 with the Civil Rights Act. So then it's like, okay, now you're allowed to run, but you have 300 plus years head start. You're trying to catch up. And um, and so people are like, oh, man, that's messed up and everything else. And But our, our white brothers and sisters, they don't see it that way. And it took me a long time to be able to figure this out. They don't see it this way because they're running. So it's not like they're not working. Right. They're still working. You have to run. In order to get, you have to do something. You know, they say a dog don't hunt, don't eat. You got to get out there and make it happen. So they're out there making it happen. But, you know, I read this book and they were talking about, um, the question was, why is it that a flight from New York to L.A. takes about an hour longer than a flight from L.A. to New York? Hmm. And what the reason is, it's just science. It's headwinds and tailwinds. It's like when you're flying from New York to L.A., you're flying directly into the trade winds. So you have to go through the trade winds to get there. That doesn't mean you're not going to get there, but it means that you're going to have to work harder, actually much harder to get there than if you have a tailwind. Because when you're flying from L.A. to New York, the wind is pushing you. And so what... I had come some of the conversations that I'm starting to have now, once I really this dawned on me was, is that you're working hard. You know, I'm saying to my white brothers and sisters, you work hard. I'm not saying that you don't work hard, but what I'm saying is, is that your skin color is not a, dip, a, 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 a debilitating uh, factor in whether or not you're successful. So it's like you really are being judged oftentimes on the merits of your ability. But many times people of color, people who are different sexual um, preferences, you know, or, you know, gender fluid, uh, people who are of uh, different religions, you know, or Jewish brothers and sisters or, or, or Muslim brothers and sisters, and they all come together. They're being judged on what's happening externally. Right. So those are the headwinds. So they're flying from New York to L.A. And you're wondering why it's taking them so long, but you're flying in the other direction and you're getting pushed while they're getting, you know, everything is coming up against them and, and, you know, and trying to hold them back. So those are some of the things. I hope I answered the question. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you did. Now, with so many companies and corporations embracing diversity, equity and inclusion, um, initiatives and training. I don't want to be a pessimist, but it doesn't seem like the needle is moving as much as it should. I know we just had this issue with ESPN. We've had this issue. We talked about hiring black uh, teachers. There's always been an issue in sports with hiring black coaches and, and even female coaches in the NBA. What, what's the, what's what, 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 why can't we, why aren't we further than we should be with all of this initiative and training coming from the diversity and inclusion and, and equity offices and departments and all of these companies? What, what is it? Why, why do I still have to turn on my television and hear about ESPN having issues with giving this job to this person? Why can't we get it together? And I say we, because I think it's a microcosm of the society and world we live in. Why can't we get it together, Dr. Harry? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I would say that we are. Okay. I would say that we are. It's just that progress takes time. And, and you know, people say, when? When are we going to get this? When are we going to get this opportunity? Da, 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 da. And I'm telling people right now, you have to remember, I'm 53 years old. And I am part, the year that I was born was the year that Black people in America became first-class citizens. Because you had the big three that came up in the 60s. You had Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. And in 1968, the year that I was born, you had the Housing Act. Those three things made black people first class citizens in this country. So think about that. 
my mother, my father, my older cousins, uh, my aunties, my uncles, they were all born without all of their rights. I'm first, me, and look at where I am now. You see what I'm saying? So that's 50 years, but you got to remember that we're going back 400 years. So, yeah, you see the stuff that's happening. We have so many things that are occurring in the media that it's instantaneous now. You know, before it would, you know, you had to have the newspaper and, and news might travel in 12, 24 hour cycles, right? Actually, they used to have two editions of the newspaper here in Pittsburgh. We used to have, I can't remember. I can't remember which one came out in the morning. I think it was the Post-Gazette came out in the morning and the Pittsburgh Press came out in the afternoon. But there used to be two newspapers. One was a morning newspaper, one was an afternoon newspaper because that was the only way you could get your news. Now you have all this buzzing and clicking and binging and all this other stuff on your phones that you're hearing all this stuff and it's like, well, what's happening? This is happening, this is happening, this is happening. But guess what? You would have never heard of the stuff that happened in the ESPN. You would have never heard of all the things that have occurred with with the uh, you know the unfortunate uh, treatment of of people who look like us by law enforcement and others. You would have never heard of those things if it wasn't for this information. So we do have, I mean, these these cell phones and 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 so on and so forth. So we do have these things, but the information is coming so hot and fast. It just feels like. Okay. We're not making any progress. But the progress is in the fact that sometimes the progress is symbolic, but more so the progress is real. You know how I know the progress is real? I'm in this position. Okay. This position wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. I know the progress is real because the the, the Commonwealth, the state of Pennsylvania has an equity and inclusion task force, which I'm a part of. And, you know, I, and, and people, the challenge is, though, is that most people think that diversity, equity, and inclusion is mostly about race. Mm-hmm. And I push back against that. I don't say, I'm saying that race is a part of it, but it's, if, if, if DEI work is a pie, race is one slice of it. And this is what I do when I when I when I talk to people, I say, okay. so again, we're having these conversations, right? You know, building equity and inclusion, one conversation at a time. So typically, you know, I'm the only person of color in the spaces that I'm that I'm training. And so when I have these conversations with folks, I say to them, how many of you think the DEI is about race? Just about everybody raises their hand. So I said, okay, I'm going to share something with you and we're going to take race out of it and show you. So I said, okay, we live here in the United States and actually in the entire world, but let's just talk about the United States. In the United States, there's more women than men. You know, the statistics is bare out. There's about 51, 52% women, 48, 49% men. So, but women make 75 to 80 cents on the dollar compared to a man. Why is that? Well, I can tell you one thing, that is an equity issue. <laughs> it's, you know, that's an equity issue right then and there. Boom. And so now if it was me, I'd be asking this question. Actually, I have asked this question. The question is, is why does that happen? And, and, and the answer is, for many of you who have seen Hamilton, it's because there's a song in Hamilton. It's called the room where it happens. And women, y'all ain't in the room. That's an inclusion issue. Now I just talked about equity and inclusion and didn't talk about race at all. Now I'm going to even blow your mind even more right now. Let's go ahead and talk about diversity. Let's go ahead and talk about the rest. So now me, I'm out of here. I'm not in this room. So if somebody was to come into this room right now and see you guys in this room, they'll see all white people. And they'll say, this room is not diverse. 
And I will push back against that because right out the gate, I'm going to tell you there's diversity of gender. There's diversity of sexuality. There's diversity of thought. There's diversity of ability. There's the socioeconomic diversity. There's all these diversities that are there. And guess what? We talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and didn't even talk about race. Right. But then the next question that comes out typically is, is, well, why is it that black and brown people, why are they the ones that are always talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, the reason why we're the ones that typically you're talking about it is because we lead with our diversity. We walk into the room and people know that we're black. And so when people walk in, so it's like, so they automatically see us as different or the other, not realizing that we may be more similar to, to them than everybody else is in the room. That's right. So that's the framing of it because now we can have a conversation. I'm not here to debate you. Debates and arguments and whatnot, they're unproductive. But if we can have a conversation and just talk about it just from just from that, that, that space right there. If we have people who are willing to have those type of con- types of conversations, we might not ever get to the point where we totally land on the same ground, but we could get to a point where we're closer, right? Because I'm not here to change anyone's beliefs. You can believe what you want to believe. However, if your beliefs don't align with the goals and missions of the organization, you're going to have to change your behaviors. Right. So that's what I'm all about. Well, as a native of Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. uh, you've seen lots of change and um, progress with diversity. Um, For someone like me who's a transplant, uh, I've seen the changes since I've been here to now. But what do you think are some additional changes Pittsburgh could make to become more of a diverse city? Um, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Some changes that Pittsburgh could make to become more of a diverse city. I think that, you know, we talked about, you know, Pittsburgh has been named the number one city in America uh, several times. I think the first time was like 86 or 87. I think I was in high school. Um, and then, I mean, that, that I remember anyway. And, uh, and several times since then. And so um, just thinking about that, what you're asking me, because conversely, Pittsburgh has also been named the worst city in America for black people. And so it's like, so how can you be number one for everybody, but last for a subset, right? Ah, I think we need to just be more active and attentive in in having these conversations. And because oftentimes we, we live, we all live on the same planet, but we live in different worlds on this planet. Right. And as you know, black people are, are we, our world intersects with others all the time. You know, we intersect with, with people from, you know, sub, you know, what would we say South Asia, Far Eastern Asia, so on and so forth. So I mean like Indian brothers and sisters, Pakistani, uh, Bangladeshian, we have uh, people from Korea, Okinawa, China, um, Africa, uh, you know, like the different countries, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa. We, we intersect with just about everyone. And of course, we intersect with people from, you know, who, whose ancestry is European, right? We intersect with people whose ancestry is German and, and Scandinavian and English and French and Spain and all this other stuff. But, and so we're, so we're very comfortable in that space. We have to have, in my opinion, people, particularly those who are from uh, the European space, having them cross over and intersect with some of these other spaces. And not just to come down and get a few artifacts, but just to really be a part of, uh, of, of being a part of these, 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 organiz- these, um, these communities and being able to... Um, 
interface with them and and them being a little bit uncomfortable, not in the sense of feeling unsafe, but just not knowing the cultural norms. Right. You know, it's like, you know, we come into spaces and we 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 know we have to know these cultural norms in order to survive in these spaces. But, you know, the cultural norms of the neighborhood that I grew up in are much different than the cultural norms of the neighborhood that I'm working in. Right. And so if we have these, uh, if people can understand that, but the cultural norms don't make people different. It just makes that, you know, like you say, variety is the spice of life. It just makes it more interesting. Right. You know, so we had, we just have to have people get out here and just be interested in learning more about other, other places, um, I mean, other uh, folks in other communities. I, I, um, I think about this a lot. One of the things I think about is developing empathy and, and, you know, last night I was on, I was on the, my wife and I were being interviewed and we were talking about, you know, how people can develop empathy. And we talked about, you know, she asked me to share this uh, thing that I say often. And I say about your mother never told you any bedtime facts. She hmm. tells you bedtime stories. That's how you know these stories. That's how you know the three bears. That's how you know the three little pigs. That's how you know what happened with Hansel and Gretel because your mom told you a story. If your mom would have just told you some facts, you wouldn't have remembered it, right? And so because there's something innate about humans where when we're told a story, we automatically put ourselves in it. We're either active in that story or we're fly on the wall, but we're in space. So we're watching it from inside of that space or we're actually participating. That's what our minds do. And so when you're having these, um, you know, uh, facts tell, story sell, we, we're developing empathy. So the, the challenge is, though, is that nobody is telling the stories of certain groups of people in this country. Like our Jewish brothers and sisters, there's a lot of empathy for, for, for them because we all know the diary of Anne Frank. We all know Schindler's List. We all know the boy in the striped pajamas, the, the, the night of a thousand stars. We know Fiddler on the roof. We know these stories because they're part of our cultural zeitgeist. But really and truly, do you know the story of Booker T. Washington? You know who he is. You know some facts about him, but you don't know his story. Do you know the story of Sojourner Truth? You know who she is. You know some facts about her, but you don't know, you know, who she is, you know, you don't know what's, what what makes her tick. What were the things that she had to go through? Do we know what Mary McLeod Bethune had to go through to start Bethune-Cookman College? You know what I mean? We don't know these stories. We don't know the heartache and the hardships and then the joys and, and the triumphs that came from that. And so that's the thing that builds the empathy when we hear and are participating in those stories. So we have to become better at storytelling. We have to be better at controlling the narrative. And that's where I think that that, you know, things will really begin to change once we begin getting better at telling the narrative. And I think that getting all the way back to the thing with Pittsburgh to make Pittsburgh um, better, uh, an attractive place, uh, uh, um, an accepting place for, for, for people of color is we have to be better at sharing the stories as to why people of color should be in Pittsburgh. Hmm. Okay. I, I believe empathy is, can be congenital or it can be acquired. But I think the issue is, when are we gonna to get to the point where we can honestly say, we're not as empathetic as a society as we would like to think we are? I think those conversations need to be had. And, and once again, I, I, I don't want to come across as a pessimist, but two, 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 two things can be true. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, 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 we love to say when something happens dealing with any minority group, we're not like that. This is not us. And I'm here to give pushback. It is very well America. We have to stop 
not telling the truth about who we are. And once we do that, then we're able to get on a path where we can do better and change. But how are you going to be an empathetic person when you can't admit that you have no empathy? We have to start there Again, first. I'm going, I'm going to push back a little bit. What, you, what you're saying is, is that, yes, there are people who, I don't think that people don't have empathy. They just don't have empathy towards certain situations. Okay. Does that make Continue. sense? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So they don't have empathy towards certain situations. And the reason why they don't have empathy towards certain situations is because they don't have that narrative about those situations. The narrative is what drives the empathy. It doesn't really matter. It's like you could tell me a bunch of facts about, I don't know, a cockroach. And I don't really care about a cockroach. I just don't want them in my house. Right? And so. But if there was a narrative that told me why cockroaches are so important, like honeybees, honeybees have a have a have a heck of a narrative that now all of a sudden people used to just swat bees left and right. Now it's like, no, we can't kill these bees. They're a major part of our ecosystem. Right. So so that that story. (laughs) So 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 you believe you are under the, the belief that if we have these stories from the beginning of time the empathy would be way higher. The level of empathy for, for black people would be much higher than it is now. Black, indigenous, Asian, whomever, Muslim, Jewish, yes, definitely. I, 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 I wholeheartedly believe that. And I think that, you know, but, but, to, but, to, but to go back to what you were saying, you know, as far as um, two things being true, that's true. I mean, that, that people can hold more than one thought. There are Two things can be true at the same time. One of the things that I talk about, and this was something that was brought to me in, uh, you know, having a conversation with some with some educators and they were asking me about. Uh, you know, what were they asking about, about, about uh, uh, the monuments? And I was like, well, what about the monuments? And they were like, should they, should we have money? You know, people are always trying to catch you with gotcha questions, right? They're like, so should we have monuments or not? And I'm like, well, which monuments are you talking about? <laughs> and they said, okay, we'll talk about Confederate monuments. And I'm like, I don't think there should be any Confederate monuments. They're like, well, why not? That's history and da 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 da. And I said, okay, well, what about this? We could just take it back. 70, 80 years. Hitler invaded France. Germany and France are right next to each other. When Hitler and Mussolini invaded France, are there any statues of Hitler and Mussolini in France? No. Are there any buildings named after Hitler and Mussolini in France? No. Uh, Why is that? Because they were an invading army who tried to take over the government. So therefore, now we know who Hitler and Mussolini are because the stuff they did was historical. We need to know these things. But should they be um, revered? Uh, absolutely not. Same thing with the, with the Confederacy. The Confederacy it was an invading army. So should we know about Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson? Yeah, absolutely. We should know about them. But should they be, be revered? Uh, absolutely not. So then that's just me. That's what I think. Okay, so what do you think about, that's a slippery slope. What do you mean it's a slippery slope? Well, if you say get rid of them, then you would say get rid of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. No, I wouldn't. And they're like, why wouldn't you? And I would say, well, I say we keep those. And they're like, why should you keep those if you don't keep the other ones? I said, we keep them because there's, they didn't invade the country. But we keep them with a caveat. And what's the caveat? Caveat is that we tell the truth. And what do you mean tell the truth? It's like, well, and that gets back to your point of two things being right. You can have two things that are right at the same time. So I'm gonna tell you two things about George Washington. George Washington, uh, the leader of the Revolutionary Army, defeated the British, became president, set a precedent that he was only, two terms, didn't become a dictator and stepped away and did that so we could not have a king. Pretty dope. I think that was cool. I think that was great. He did that. He did do that. 
But also at the same time, George Washington enslaved hundreds of people, tortured them. I know when I was in school, I learned that George Washington had wooden teeth. I had no idea that George Washington's teeth, I believe that his bridges were made out of wood, but his teeth were from enslaved Africans. That's horrible. <laughs> That's horrible. You pulled somebody's teeth out of their mouth to put in a bridge for him so he could have teeth and that person doesn't have teeth? That's one of the worst, I can't think, that's terrible. So you could say that George Washington did some great stuff and George Washington did some horrible stuff. So can we say about George Washington that George Washington was great for the country, but he wasn't great for all the people in the country? Yeah. We, I think we can say that. Sure. I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. And so two things can be right at the same time. So do we take down the statues of George Washington? No, but we tell the truth. That's just me. But, but we tend to lean on one narrative. So when I hear Kamala Harris or Joe Biden say, this is not a racist country, but then I have intelligence from the CIA saying that the biggest terrorist group is white supremacist. How confusing. Well, what does and Dr. King say about that? What does Dr. King say about that? He says, cowards ask if it's safe. Politicians ask if it's popular. The conscious ask if it's right. Hmm. So when you talk about Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden, politicians. Yeah, but it doesn't help the cause, is what I'm saying. I think it, it flies in the face of what you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, because it gives the impression that there is no reason for a fight because there is no struggle. And well, so we could be... Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So we, so we could be. We could say we've come a long way, but there's still progress. Once again, they could, they could phrase it and frame it as if to, to say... We, we're, we're doing great as a nation. We've come a long way, but there mm -hmm. is still a long way to go. But when you frame it the way that they do, or some people do, whether they're in the public uh, uh, eye or not, it, it set, to me, it sets us back. I would say that, you know, again, I would say that, that sometimes some people say words that are unfortunate. I would say that, in my opinion, that, 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 you know, to frame it that way is a little bit unfortunate. But, you know, looking at the situation and the position that they're in, you know, I don't have all of the information that they have is mm -hmm. to understand why they would say certain things in a certain way. It's sort of like, you know, being a parent. You know, my children are grown now, but when they weren't, they didn't have all the information to understand why I would do certain things. And they would be like, that just doesn't even seem right, Dad. Why did you do this? Da, 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 da. And I had my reasons that to them really doesn't make sense. But after the fact, they're like, oh, 10 years later, I understand now you had to do it this way because you had to circumnavigate this other stuff. So I don't know why people say or do certain things. I just know that I'm going to continue to do the things that I'm doing by having the conversations like we're having right now. Sure. And I, and, I, and I agree. What are your thoughts on critical race theory? Critical race theory? Um, I really didn't have any thoughts on critical race theory until a couple of months ago. <laughs> and, and the reason why is, is that, you know, from what I understand about critical race theory, um, actually, I know, not even understand, I know that critical race theory is a postgraduate study and it's a theory that, that you know, <laughs> it's a theory, first and foremost. And it's a study. It's not here. But the people are taking and twisting it and making it into something that it's not. And, and so I know that in conversations that I have had with, with certain people, you know, asking about curriculum um, and how it's, how it's being, you know, utilized in schools, I can tell everyone that in, in just in Pennsylvania that critical race theory is not being taught in schools. Critical, our, our curriculum 
the, the all public schools in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania curriculum standards are mandated by the Pennsylvania Department of Education. And those and the, those curriculum standards from the PDE, the Pennsylvania Department of Education, are ratified by the Pennsylvania General Assembly. So it goes through your state reps and your state senators. They have to vote on it. And so as far as I know, and I've spoken to a lot of people about it and I've done some research myself, I haven't seen anything about critical race theory. I just think that sometimes people are looking for a reason to fight, and any old thing will do. You know, I remember once some friends of mine would say peanut butter, and they're like, what's peanut butter? Just a reason to fight. (laughs) 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 So, like, okay. Moving forward, um, what are, do you have any, I know you, you talked about offline, you were a public speaker, motivational speaker. Any uh, thoughts on getting back on that path? I think that I do that every day. Mm. You know, working with my students, um, working with uh, other adults, working with schools, uh, working with other, you know, um, you know, my wife runs our company uh, and, and occasionally I have opportunities to, to go in and share, you know, the stage, the proverbial stage with her. I'm working with um, other companies and organizations. And so so I, I get that fixed, taken care of pretty, you know, a lot. You know, people like you asking me to speak. And, and um, so it, it's definitely something that I enjoy, um, but I get that fixed, taken care of. But the main thing that I really am excited about is working with the kids. Um, my kids, they wrote this really amazing book. See that? Raise Your wow. Voice and Stories of Shout. Um, Last summer, you know, kids had, they were having some struggles. You know, people don't think about the struggles of the kids because nobody wants to talk to the kids. I talk to them every day. And so they were really struggling with what was going on in the world because people were keeping secrets from them. I mean, like in secrets in a way that you can't really make this a secret because it's happening in plain sight. And so um, somebody needs to help them unpack it. So I said, why don't we just write, you know, as a catharsis? Right about how you feel, and we'll turn it into a book. And they're like, Dr. Herring, you think we can make a book? I'm like, do you realize how many horrible books are written every year? <laughs> I said, of course we can write a book, and I guarantee you that it'll be pretty dope. And, and it wound up being pretty doggone dope. And so we have some amazing testimonials in this book. Testimonials from, uh, I'm just looking right here, Mr. Kobe Altman. He's the general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Dr. Clyde Pickett, he's the uh, Vice Chancellor of Diversity and Inclusion from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, we have uh, Ms. Jenna Kramer, she's the Executive Director of the Green Building Alliance. Uh, we have Ms. Latricia Hill Chandler, she's the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Arvest Bank. I had no idea what Arvest Bank was, but Arvest Bank is actually Walmart, well, actually the Walton Family Bank. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not you know, Sam Walton's kids and grandkids, that's their bank. And she's the CDO for that. So we have some, this book. Um, and where, where, where can people get that book? Um, you can get it from handprintshillfootprints.org or I'm think, I think I have the link right here. Let me see if I can pull it up. You can, yeah, you can actually, um, I'm, oh, can I send this here? I, I can't send sure. anything in chat. Let me see. There it is. All right, so you click there, you can buy the book there. Okay, okay. When I moved to Pittsburgh in 2010, I decided to become a big brother from the Big Brother Big Sister program in 2012. And my little was six at the time, and now he's 16. Okay, so, wow. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly when you find an opportunity to pour into the kids and then work with the kids, it's so rewarding. And I think my biggest surprise is how much he's poured into me. Yeah. And sometimes I feel bad. I'm, I hope I didn't cheat you out of this because I feel amazing just having you as my little brother. And I hope you feel the same. It's, it, people think it's just one-sided. I want to do something. Mm-hmm. No, you, it's reciprocal. And you get just as much as you put in sometimes more. And Absolutely. so. It's so true. That's so true. 
And so um, I'll be remiss if I don't say thank you for all that you've done with the kids and the book and the, and the movies and the editing. Like If I had someone like that in my formative years, I would have gotten to media production a whole lot sooner. So thank you for all that you've done for the kids and the community and continue to do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's my pleasure. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm advocate that if you can do well and do good at the same time, that's a winning situation. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. So, so Dr. Heron, do good. I want to be mindful of the time. Where can mm -hmm. people find you? What's what's your uh, website? What's if people want to um, contact you and your wife for you know? Oh uh, yeah, they can just go to HeronSeminars.com. Um, and I'm everywhere on social media. You can just hit me up at at, Ch at Chuck Herring on uh, Twitter or at Chuck Herring Speaks on Instagram. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, one more thing you 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 talked about very early in this conversation, uh, being a an avid hip hop fan. Yeah. And that that took me back to a place. I my first recollection of hip hop was Planet Rock in, in 1980, and I've been <laughs> a big fan ever since. And you talked about Common and Bahamadia, and you just took me to a place where I was like, ah. That's what I'm talking about. What are, you, what are your thoughts now on the culture and the impact on society on the whole, but, but also just the Black community? Are we in a good space? Um, and, and once again, I, we're not in the public enemy, ex-Klan uh, uh, era. And so I don't want to bash any of these right, artists right, right, for, what right. they, for what they do. But what are your general thoughts on where the culture is and where it's taking us? Um, that's another really good question. As far as being hip hop, hip hop, I am hip hop. Um, so I'm just at a different fast phase and facet of hip hop than the people who are coming up now who were in their, you know, teens, 20s, 30s. Um, but I, so I don't really understand a lot of what they're attempting to say or do with hip hop, you know, because before it was, it was, a, it was a music of empowerment to me that, you know, people would say and do things in the, in the level of skill that was required to be involved. You know, you know, my friends and I, we talk about this all the time <laughs> and not to belittle anyone. But just to say that it's it's a different vibe. When we used to listen to music, listen to rap music in particular, and we would hear somebody who had bars like, say, um, you know, Rakim or, you know, or LL or somebody, and they would just be flowing. And you're saying to yourself, oh, my goodness, I don't think I could ever do that. You know what I mean? And now I think that kids hear rappers and be like, I know I can do that. I mean, I'm sitting there and as soon as I hear a beat, I can make one of those songs that those that the kids are saying right now just off the dome, right? And mm -hmm. it's like, so it's not about the um, complexity of it anymore. It, it it really, it I don't know what, what attracts them to it, um, because I'm not 20, you know what I mean? Because I'm sure my parents didn't understand what attracted me to it when I was 20. You know, so it's, it's, it's not for me to understand. I just hope that they realize that the power that they have and then they get a chance to grow. And so, I mean, because if you were to tell me that, you know, in 1992, when Snoop came out on The Chronic, that in 2021, he would have a TV show with Martha Stewart. I tell you, he was crazy, right? <laughs> crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, you know, you tell me that Ice Cube would would be, uh, are we there yeah. yet? Right. You know what I mean? Right. You know right. what I mean? Like family-friendly movies to tell me that Ice-T would be on a TV show for 20 years about being a police officer. Right. I, I just couldn't see it. No. So 
I just hope that these kids who are in it now, because unfortunately, every time I, you know, again, we talk about these, these, these smartphones that many people use really stupidly, but um, it seems like every day there's some rapper that I don't know because I'm not in that mix anymore. Sure. They're dying. They're being mm-hmm. murdered. They're going to jail. And I'm like, for what? What's happening right. here? So hopefully they get an opportunity to grow, to become 50 years old, to become 60 years old, like Ice Cube and Chuck D. You know what I mean? You know, I think about it all the time. I'm like myself, Will Smith, LL and Ice Cube, we're all basically, and Jay-Z, we're all the same age. I'm the only one that's not a millionaire. I hate them dudes. (laughs) 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 But I think about where we were. Right. It's, it's an amazing journey when you look yeah. at Will Smith coming from parents just don't understand to now. You can't even fathom. Like, it's just an amazing story. And like you said, LL, I see Ice Cube. These guys have transitioned and rebranded and, mm-hmm. and really made something of themselves at a time when you were just a rapper. And I right. loved you for it. But now... You just soared, and you're in a, just a completely and totally different stratosphere. I'm like, LL, LL is Def Jam. He started, that's him, at right. 16. He's an icon. Right. And now he's on a, 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 a TV series for the past, what, 10, 15 years? It, it just blows your mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, so my goal, my, my hope is that the people who were you know, carrying the mantle of hip hop right now, that they have an opportunity to grow like we did. Right. That just just grow because as you grow, you see more, you experience more, you're able to make better connections and you're able to to um, develop into something. You know, one of the things that, you know, we talk about a lot, my wife and I, is that, you know, and not to talk about, this person, but he, he said it in his uh, comedy special about kids being brain damaged. Bill Cosby used to say that all the time, but it's true. Not that they're necessarily brain damaged, but their brains are underdeveloped. And that's why, you know, the insurance companies spend billions of dollars on actuaries who say that, Hmm, your brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25. So we're going to charge you these astronomical rates. And then uh, instantly when you turn 25, the rates go down. Because your brain isn't fully developed. So my hope for these for these young hip hoppers is that they get an opportunity for their brains to develop and then they get a chance to use them. Mm. Well said. Um, Can I squeeze one more question out of you? Sure. Real quick. Mm -hmm. The N word. Should we as a community ban it from public domain and keep it? In, 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 in private or should we just ban it altogether or does it even matter? Um, I never really thought about it from that perspective. Um, I think about it from a perspective of how is it that you carry yourself and, and you know, I don't think that anyone, you know, you know, we talk about cultural appropriation, right? And so this is something that, you know, a lot of black people are claiming that black people have, you know, singular domain over this word. You know, it's like we do this. And now we're seeing other cultures that are claiming pejoratives as their words. Like, for example, women calling themselves the B word or or our LGBTQ um, plus family members who are calling themselves the F word, right? So there's all these different words that were pejoratives even as as shortly as 10 years ago that are now being claimed by these communities to be, you know, they can utilize them as terms of endearment. And and you said something um, a while ago about minorities and and one thing that I just want to push back on is that you know we're the global majority we might be the minority in this country 
but globally we're the majority. And so when people say different things and whatnot, the global majority, you know, I guess people can say and do how they what they what they want and how they feel about it. Me personally, I'm not one to be out here just throwing that word around willy nilly. You know what I mean? I think that I, I, I've, I've kind of outgrown and, and I've outgrown. Uh, I've grown past some things. I think that my vocabulary has grown to the point where I can say and do certain things and get my point across without using certain words that I just don't want to use in my vocabulary anymore. But maybe others haven't. So I can't begrudge them because they haven't grown at the pace that I have. You know, so it's like, dude, you say what you do what you do, but I'm going to say to you, it's like anybody else, you know, respect me and don't use that word toward me. Right. Okay. Well, listen, I appreciate this conversation so much and you accepting the invite to be a guest on the Obsessively Outspoken podcast. Is there anything else you would like to say before we conclude, Dr. Herring? Um, i just like to say uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for thinking of me. I'm super excited that you um, are in the middle of, of living your dream and your passion and, uh, and just honored to be a part of this and just wish you all of the success in the future. And uh, looking forward to seeing where you're going to take this because I know we're going to take it all the way, you know, past the top, all the way to the tip. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And same success to you and your wife as well. Thank so. You. I'm sure we're going to keep in touch. Yes, and, sir. Uh, and once again, I appreciate you. And uh, hopefully we may be able to do this again in the, in the future sometime. Definitely. Definitely. Appreciate you, sir. Same here. Absolutely. All right. Take care. You as well.